Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see all of you here this morning. My name's Jason, and it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. Turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, I'm going to preach this entire passage this morning. No, I'm not. Yeah, don't worry. That's not going to happen. I'd have time to read it and then pray, and that would be it. But we are going to embark this morning on, if you include this morning, a 22-week journey through Psalm 119. And before I even read the passage, I want to give you a little introduction to the text. It's going to be very brief, and it's probably not going to satisfy every question that you have. But to give us a little direction, the reason that we're going to be walking through this, if you include this morning for 22 weeks, is there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And this psalm is what we refer to as an alphabetic acrostic poem. And what that means is that each of the 22 stanzas is dedicated to a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And we miss this in English, but it's quite beautiful that each sentence in each stanza begins with the Hebrew letter that it's dedicated to. Let me try to make that even more clear. So this morning, as we look at the Aleph stanza, these first eight verses, each verse, each word in each verse begins with the letter, Hebrew letter, Aleph. And then when we go to the next stanza, the Beit stanza in verse 9, each word in that first verse begins with the letter Beit, and so on and so forth. It's a shame that we can't all read Hebrew. I don't say that to make you feel bad, but it's just beautiful to see. And it's not just beautiful. It would also be a helpful way for young Hebrew men and women to memorize this passage. And there is a high likelihood that none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself, when he was a young Hebrew lad, memorized this very psalm. And it's historically been referred to as the saint's alphabet, for obvious reasons, since it goes through the Hebrew alphabet, or the great alphabet. And it's been very loved throughout church history, even if some guys, as they were preaching through it, skipped it, because they thought it was too long. Someone is like St. Augustine, he just completely skipped it. He said, it's too long, I can't make sense of it. Kind of shocking to realize that, but it has been a a much beloved psalm. And, And the reason for that is quite clear. In almost every verse, there's a reference to God's word. And so what we have here is the psalmist rejoicing in God and the gift of his word and how much he loves it and how much he longs to walk in accord with it that he might be closer to his gracious covenant-keeping God. He wants to walk in covenant faithfulness himself. And so this is a long prayer before the Lord of him asking for the Lord to cause him to walk in those ways. And here's the thing, the psalmist doesn't just want that for himself. He wants that for his listeners as well. And so may the Lord be pleased to cause us as his people, as we walk through this passage, to love him more to love his word, to be filled with thankfulness at the self-revelation of God in the sacred scriptures. Having said that, let me read now Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. And before I do so, I remind you once again, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God. Let us tremble joyfully before it. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, 
who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have heard now from your word. And so together we lift up our eyes to you who are enthroned in the heavens. And we ask, we cry out, we beg you for mercy. Mercy that we might rightly know you through your word. And so even as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of their master, so too our eyes look to you, the Lord our God, until you have mercy upon us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I think if you were to ask most people, whether they be believers or unbelievers, what it is that they want out of life, and even if you don't ask that specific question, if you just listen to the way they talk about their life, I think what you'll find is that most people would summarize their desire, what they want out of life, is to be happy. They want to be happy. They want the people in their lives that they love to be happy. And if you push a little bit further in on that, what exactly do you mean by you want to be happy? I think you'll discover that they want to live a good life. They want to live a worthwhile life, a blessed life, a life actually worth living. But here's the question that I think most of us don't ask. As people are in pursuit of this good life, whatever they perceive to be the good life, they don't stop and ask themselves the question, what actually, objectively, is the good life? Because there's an objective answer to that question. It's not just up to us, whatever the culture may tell you, to decide the kind of life that we want to pursue, and then we just get to slap the label, that's the good life on it. No, 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 no. There's an objective reality that is the good and blessed life. A life that God approves of. A life that God has actually created us to live. And here's the beautiful thing. The Lord has revealed that to us in his word in his sacred scriptures. And what we have in Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8, is a revelation of what the good life, what the life that God blesses is and looks like. And so we're going to see that this morning by looking at three important truths about the blessed life. First of all, we're going to see how we are to understand the blessed life We'll see that in verses 1 through 4. What the blessed life is, the fact that it's walking in a gracious covenant relationship with God and faithfully living our lives in accord with His Word. Second of all, we'll see that as believers, when that blessed life is described to us, we actually desire to live it. We desire to live in accord with God's Word more and more. We'll see that in verses 
5 through 7, the natural response of a Christian to hearing a description of the blessed life is that we desire it, to be in close fellowship with God and walk in accord with his word. And then thirdly, we'll see how we're actually to pursue this blessed life. We'll see that we are to resolve our wills by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in accord with God's word, but to do so dependently upon him. We do not have sufficiency in and of ourselves to live as God has created us to, but by the power of the Holy Spirit we can. So here's my hope. Whether you're a believer here this morning or an unbeliever, I hope you walk away with a clear understanding of what the blessed life is. Because for us as Christians, it's so easy for us to get tempted by the flesh and the world and the devil and veer off course. And if you're a, an unbeliever here this morning, there's a high likelihood you don't even know what the blessed life is. And so my hope and prayer is that the Holy Spirit would regenerate you. And through God's gracious work and by the power of His Spirit, you yourself would pursue the blessed life as well. So let's look first then at how we are to understand the blessed life. Look at verse 1 with me. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Now, as you hear that word blessed right out of the gate, I hope your mind drifts back to the first psalm. Because what's the first verse in Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now I'm going to jump forward a little bit. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so what we have in Psalm 1 is a gateway to the rest of the Psalter. This is the blessed life. And then in Psalm 119, these first verses here are a gateway to the rest of Psalm 119. And what the scriptures are revealing to us again is this is the blessed life. And what's fascinating is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word that the Greek translators decided to use for blessed in Psalm 1 and Psalm 119 is makarioi. Now, why is that important? Because that's the exact same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. When he starts his public ministry, he says what in Matthew 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So what's he showing us? This is the blessed life. And so we're thankful that Scripture doesn't leave us, God doesn't leave us to our own devices to try to answer this most important question. No, he reveals it to us in his word. So what is the blessed life? Blessed are those whose way is blameless. And how are they blameless? They walk in the law of the Lord. Now, I know everybody's already scared. Uh Uh-oh. Blameless? Who's blameless? I'm not blameless. How am I going to live this life? Well, let me clarify something right out of the get-go. In scriptures and in the Old Testament, anytime someone's referred to as blameless, it's not saying that they're without sin. It's saying that by God's grace, because they now have the spirit dwelling within them, they from the heart love God and his word and genuinely, sincerely, without guile, without hypocrisy, seek the Lord and seek to obey his commandments. That's what it means to live the blessed life, to walk blamelessly, is to walk with the Lord in covenant relationship, 
and faithfully obey the commands that he's given us. Now, here's the problem for the unbeliever. Okay, what is the blessed life? It's communion with God and obeying his commands. Do unbelievers have any desire truly to do that? No, they don't. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you need to hear that. You are cut off, as it were, from the blessed life because you don't actually desire these things. You don't desire to walk with God. You don't desire to obey his word. Instead, you want to set yourself up as God. And just in case you think I'm picking on you if you're an unbeliever here this morning, that was the case for every believer here this morning before God graciously saved them. We were slaves to our own passions, the flesh, the world, and the devil. We did not have the desire to submit to God. We wanted to set ourselves up as God. We did not want to submit ourselves to his law. We wanted to be a law unto ourselves. And in that state, what did we deserve? Nothing but wrath. That's what God's justice requires for our sin, our rebellion against him. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I don't take any pleasure in this telling you this, but I'm warning you, that's what you deserve for your sins. And yet here's the incredible thing. When God does graciously save us and send his spirit and regenerate us and unite us to his son, what happens? We become alive to God and we love his word. And from a sincere heart, We begin to, baby steps at first, but progressively more and more, there's a consistent walk in obeying God's commands. And so this is the blessed life that God's people have the unspeakable privilege of living. And so the author goes on to talk about this more explicitly in verses 2 through 3. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. He said, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Again, this is a further description of the blessed life. So what does it look like? First of all, verse 2, those who are living this blessed life by God's grace because of their union with Jesus, they keep God's testimonies. What are God's testimonies? It's his self-revelation in his word. I've made myself known to my people in sacred scripture. And so they keep those. They guard those. They meditate on who I am because they know that it's through my self-revelation, through my word, that they have communion and fellowship with me. And as a result of them meditating on those testimonies, look at verse 3. He says a part of the blessed life is that they do no wrong, but they walk in his ways. They no longer walk in the ways that were once natural to them. The sinful ways of the flesh, the world, and the devil. No, now they walk in accord with God's word. This is the blessed life. But don't lose sight of why we live this way. Why those who've been blessed by God to live this blessed life live this way. They're not just doing it by way of lip service. They're not doing it like it's a checklist. All right, I did that, I did that, I did that, I did that. Hey, look, I obeyed all the commands of God. Pretty impressive, huh? So that people will think well of them. Or so that they can feel morally okay with themselves. That's not why they obey the law of God and why they live this blessed life. No, what does verse 2 say, the very end there? 
It's they seek him with their whole heart. They're in pursuit of the Lord. That's why they live this way. They're in pursuit of him. The law is not an end in itself for the believer. The believer walks in the way of the law because they know that that's how they grow closer in their relationship with the Lord and make known their thankfulness and gratitude for his saving of them. And so the blessed then actually obey the command that the Lord gives in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. It's the same sentiment that the psalmist expresses in Psalm 27 verse 8. Where he says, Lord, you've said to me, seek my face. And how does the psalmist respond? Your face, Lord, do I seek. The blessed life is a pursuit of God. Not the law as an end in itself, but the lawgiver. They love him because he first loved us. And we're no longer condemned because Jesus stood condemned in our place on the cross. And the law has been fulfilled in him and that's been counted as ours. And so we love him and we want to pursue him and walk in obedience with him. Now here's the question. On whose authority do we have it that this is the blessed life? That this is actually the life that God created us to live? Well, look at verse 4. You, that's the Lord that he's speaking to, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Why has God commanded these commandments? For us to keep them diligently. And on whose authority is he telling us to obey them and that this is the blessed life? God himself. Who is God? He is our creator. And you know that, and we're his creature, by the way. And you know that if someone creates something, some product, and then they sell it in the store, what does it almost come with every time? A manual. This is why it was created. This is how you're to use it. Don't use it this way. Use it this way, right? The creator is the one who has the authority to say this is what its purpose was. God has created us and revealed in his word, this is how you are to live. This is how I created you to live. To live any other way is not a blessed life or a good life. It's a cursed life. And it's a life that's separate from God. If that's not enough authority, look at the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who assumed a human nature, lived this blessed life. And he lived it perfectly. Jesus was perfectly blameless. He walked perfectly in the law of the Lord. He perfectly kept the Lord's testimonies. He perfectly sought the Lord with his whole heart, his Father and his Father's will. And he perfectly did no wrong, but walked in the ways of the Lord. He did that for us as our substitute. And he did that as our example as well. And we're now to follow in his footsteps. And as if that weren't enough, we're missing one person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. On his authority as well, we have it. Why? Because when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts... What does he immediately do? He gives us a love for God and his word, and we want to obey it. And so on whose authority do we have it that this is the blessed life, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? There is no greater authority 
than that. And I'm just so thankful for the clarity with which this psalm and these first four verses make known to us this is the blessed life. Because brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I need this kind of clarity amidst a culture and a life full of voices that are tempting me to doubt that this is the blessed life. The flesh, the world, and the devil want to try to convince us that's not the blessed life. The blessed life is in how much money you have, the material possessions that you own, the way that you look, the salary that you make, the way other people think about you, and on and on. And we get tempted to think that's really what my life consists of, doesn't it? And it's not. What is the blessed life? Being in a covenant relationship with the Lord in which we faithfully walk with him. All those other things can be stripped away. And yet if we have this, that is the blessed life. That is the good life. And God graciously says, don't lose sight of that. Don't forget it. Now, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, this is the life you were created to live. So however great you think your life might be right now, it's not the good life. It's not the blessed life. However happy you subjectively may be, objectively it's a cursed life. And one that if you don't deviate from that path by God's grace, you will eventually experience his wrath and judgment for all eternity, which I do not want for you. So I'm waving the warning flag. This is the life you were created to live not that one. But I hope what you can see is that the blessed life is beautiful. It's a beautiful life. And the psalmist knows that as he's laying it out for us. How do we know that? Because as he's describing the blessed life in verses 1 through 4, he immediately follows it up with verse 5, and we are exposed to his desire for the blessed life. That's the second point, how we are to desire the blessed life. So let's look at verse 5 then. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. So do you see the response here? The response of the psalmist is, that is a beautiful life. I accept it on God's authority that that's the life that I was created to live and called to live graciously as he's entered into a covenant relationship with me. And so I make this desire known to the Lord. He exclaims, O Lord, that I might live that blessed life. And that's the spirit-wrought response of God's people. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so as we pray this and as we desire it, we need to understand that's wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the question. Why do we desire it? Why do we desire this blessed life? Well, there's no end of the reasons that we could give here, but let me just briefly give you four reasons why we desire the blessed life. First of all, we desire the blessed life because we love God. And why do we love God? We love God because he first loved us. We love him because he is lovely. We love him because he's given us a heart that now loves him in response to his love, the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. And so how does that love give expression? John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. 
That's how we show our love for God. We keep His commandments. We walk in accord with God's Word. That's the expression of our love to Him. And so we want to desire more and more walking in accord with His Word. Why? Because we grow closer to the Lord as we walk in accord with His Word. And so if you love somebody, the way you get closer to them is understand what their desires are and then walk in accord with those, right? And that's no different in our relationship with God. Second of all, we desire this blessed life because we aren't under the law anymore. We're now under grace. Now, what do we mean by that? We're not under the law, so now we want to obey the law? Yes, it sounds like it's contradictory, but it's not. Because what we mean when we say we aren't under the law anymore, we mean we're not under it as a covenant of works. We're not under its condemnation anymore. Every person that is born, unless they're saved and regenerated in the womb, which does happen, see John the Baptist, but everyone who is born or conceived is under that covenant of works in which they owe God perfect righteousness in accord with his law. And if they don't, which we don't, and because of Adam's guilt imputed to us, we deserve God's wrath. And so that's what it means to be under the law, under a covenant of works. And none of us can dig ourselves out of that hole because we owe an infinite debt and we're finite, so we can't pay it back. And yet that's why we're thankful that Jesus came. Because Jesus was what? Born under the law. He took that covenant of works upon himself. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He paid the penalty that the law required for our sin on the cross, rose from the dead to newness of life, and we rise to newness of life with him. And now we have new desires. And so since we're no longer under the condemnation of the law, We see the law as a way for us to express our gratitude and thanks and love to the Lord. And he commands us to now walk in his ways. And what a loving command it is, brothers and sisters, because to live any other way is not to live the way that God created you to live. This is the blessed life. This is why we desire to live it more and more because we're not under law. We're under grace. Thirdly, we desire to live this blessed life because we're a new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All this is from God. We're not what we once were. We're not dead to God. We don't hate him. We don't hate his law. We're not slaves to the flesh and the world and the devil. We're now alive to God and we love his law. And so we walk in accord with it because that's what we actually desire now by God's grace. And so what we realize then is that the promise given in the old covenant of what the new covenant reality would be from Ezekiel 36:27 has now happened to us. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We are a new creation. And so we have new desires and new affections now. The tyranny of the flesh, the world, and the devil has been broken. Yes, there's still a war that rages between the two, but the spirit has dominance, not the flesh and the world and the devil. Lastly, fourthly, we desire the blessed life because we've experienced how glorious it is to walk with God in his ways. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and we've experienced that walking with him in fellowship and faithfulness 
is the blessed life. It brings joy and delight to us. And so that's why we can say, as the psalmist does elsewhere, in Psalm 19, verses 10 and 11, speaking of the law, more to be desired are they than gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Brothers and sisters, this is just some of the reasons why we desire to walk with God and in obedience to His Word. And I fear sometimes, if we're not careful, our hearts start to drift, and we start to look at the blessed life, and we go, man, that seems burdensome. Man, the law, obeying the law, that just sounds so stuffy and boring, and look at all that the world has to offer. Why would I want to do that? And here's the reality, brothers and sisters. The law for us in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is not burdensome. John says that in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 that we read just a little while ago. You want to know what the real burden is for the Christian in his relationship with the law? It's that he can't obey it and walk in accord with it the way that he wants to. That's the burden. Oh, how great the love that God has shown us. And we want to, in response, love him in turn and express that love and show it to him. And be faithful to Him. And yet, because of this battle between the flesh and the Spirit, we find again and again, we fall short, don't we? Our desire for that blessed life always outstrips our performance, doesn't it? And so what do we say? We say along with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I want to obey God's law. But you know what? There's always these mixed secondary motives that are swirled in there. And I hate it. I hate it. And true believers hate it. And so we say, along with Paul in Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he knows. Thanks be to God, only Jesus Christ will deliver us from it one day, one glorious day when we will be able to walk perfectly by God's grace in perfect fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and with one another. But in the meantime, our lives here are one of conflict in which we desire this blessed life. And yet there's always this sin that clings so closely. So what do we do? We repent of it because we hate it. We're allied with God in that, by the way. God hates the flesh that dwells within us. We hate it. We can't wait for it to be eradicated. We repent of it and we wholeheartedly turn and say, Lord, I want to grow more. That's the desire of the Christian. But those aren't the only reasons why we desire the blessed life. The psalmist gives us even more reasons. Look at verse 6 with me. And we'll see another reason why we desire this blessed life. He says, Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. What's he saying? He's saying, Lord, if you make me steadfast, my ways steadfast in keeping your statutes, then I won't have to have shame. I won't have to have shame when I sit under the teaching of your word. When I read it for myself, you guys know what I'm talking about right here. Notice how he says, when having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. You ever had this experience in the Christian life? You turn a blind eye to one of God's commands? For whatever reason, I don't like that. I don't understand that. Or maybe if you've been a Christian for a while, I keep trying to do and obey that commandment, and I don't seem to be able to. So I'm going to turn a blind eye to it. Well, what happens? 
When you sit under the teaching of the word, when you hear it proclaimed or preached or you're reading it or you hear a truth in it, you feel ashamed. And you rightly feel ashamed. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so then what do we do? We say, I'm not going to turn a blind eye to that command. I repent of how I haven't been walking in step with that. Jesus, thank you that you did that perfectly in my place so that I'm not condemned for that. And thank you that I'm also united to you now so that I can grow in that more and more, both in my hatred of disobeying the command and a love of walking in obedience with that command so that I can be closer to you. He desires the blessed life so that he doesn't have to be ashamed before the law of God. And instead of shame, what happens if the Lord will cause his ways to be steadfast in his statutes? Instead of shame, what will result is praise. Look at verse 7. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your statutes. I don't know about you, but when I'm feeling ashamed, I'm not necessarily particularly driven to praise. If I'm ashamed after I look at Jesus and receive forgiveness for my sins, then I'm motivated to want to praise. But see, here's the thing. He's saying, when I'm walking in step with you, when I'm walking in step with your commands... Then I will praise you with what? With an upright heart. What's an upright heart? Again, it's not a perfect heart. Mikey read from 1 John chapter 1, if we say we're without sin, we make God a liar. He knows that we still have sin. So what's an upright heart? It's a heart that is without guile, sincerely pursuing the Lord. And he says, when I have that upright heart, with that upright heart, I will praise you. Why is he praising the Lord? He's praising the Lord because the Lord is the one who causes him to learn the righteous rules. See, the psalmist knows here, I've got so much more to learn. Has this been your experience, not just with the Bible, but pretty much anything? The more you learn about something, the more you realize, I have got a whole lot more to learn. (laughs) Okay, that's not just my experience. That's what the psalmist is saying here. And he's saying, Lord, I can only learn ultimately from you. Not saying that the Lord doesn't use the means of preachers and teachers and books and other believers and songs and all of these things. But he's saying at the end of the day, who's the one that teaches me? Lord, you teach me. And so who gets the praise? Not the preacher or the teacher or the book or even me. It's you. Because you're graciously sanctifying me and making my ways more and more steadfast with your statutes. And so I will do that with an upright heart, not like the people, the religious leaders that Jesus describes in Matthew 15, 8, where Jesus says of them, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. No, we want a heart that God gives us that is singularly focused on him and on his commands. So if you're a believer here this morning, brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this loud and clear. It is a natural, normal part of the Christian experience to desire obedience to God and His law greater than you're able to actually do. (laughs) Now, that doesn't mean that you should be okay with that. There's a holy discontentment with that, and we want to grow more and more and more. But don't think you're strange or weird for wanting to obey God's law and walk with Him faithfully more than you actually do. We'll bemoan that fact. Paul does in Romans chapter 7. But know that that's a normal part of the Christian experience and thank God that you do in fact desire to walk with him. 
and that consistently you are growing more and more because that's an evidence of the fact that you have true saving faith. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you have no desire for this. There's no desire for the blessed life, to know God, to walk with Him. And so my prayer for you this morning is that God graciously would give you that desire. And if you find that you end up do having that desire, that's not because it came from you. It's because it came from God. And I would love to talk with you after the service if you find that that's happening in you because I'm praying that that's what the Lord would do in you right now. So we've looked at how we're to understand the blessed life, how as true believers we will desire the blessed life because it's so beautiful and because the Spirit's within us now. Lastly, let's look briefly at how we are to pursue the blessed life. Look at verse 8 with me. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. So how's the psalmist pursuing the blessed life here? Well, he's doing two things. First of all, he's saying, I will keep your statutes. He's resolving to do this. He understands the blessed life. He's got a desire for it. And now we see him pursuing it by resolving to obey the Lord's commands that have been revealed to him, to treasure the Lord's testimonies, to commune with the Lord through the sacred scriptures. And he's resolving his will. He's saying, I'm not going to be double-minded. I'm not going to be blown by this desire that way and this desire that way. It's a good thing for him to resolve to walk in these ways. Now, you might say, well, isn't that rather redundant? I mean, if God commands it, whether you resolve to do it or not, you're going to be held accountable for it. So why resolve? Well, again, this is another evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in you. The only reason that you're resolving to do this is because the Holy Spirit's given you the desire to be resolved. And it's helpful for us to resolve ourselves. I'm not going to pursue these other things. I'm resolved to steadfastly pursue the Lord. It's a good thing. But notice what he follows it up with. He's not being Peter here in his resolution. You remember what Peter tells Jesus? I'm going to be betrayed. And you guys, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times, Peter. No. Peter says, Lord, though they all fall away, I won't. Oh, Peter. We love you, Peter. But he's resolving in his own strength to do it. That's not what the psalmist is doing here. He's not pulling a Peter, if you will. What is he doing? He goes on to say, I will keep your statutes. That's good. Good to be resolved. Do not utterly forsake me. What's he saying? He's saying, Lord, I know that this is a work of your spirit that I'm resolving to do this, but I cannot do it on my own. Oh God, please, in this resolution, do not leave me to my own devices because I will crash and burn horribly. And you know this from your own Christian experience, don't you? Because we've all done this in the flesh. I'm not going to do that anymore. And then... And now, why does the Lord allow that to happen? To show us, you need me desperately. Not just, oh yeah, I come and get some grace from Jesus when I first become a believer and then chug along in my own strength until glory. No, you walk with me. You stick your head in my yoke and you walk with me because my yoke is easy and my burden's light. I teach you how to do this. I walk alongside of you. I carry you. And so what's the point? The point is every single command that we're given by God for the believer turns into a prayer. (laughs) You shall have no other gods before me. Yes, I'm resolved to do that. Lord, please keep me from having other gods. May I put no other god before me and worship it in your place. You must keep me. 
And so every command that God gives, it's not, I'm going to do this through sheer willpower. It's good to be resolved. But then to say, Lord, you must keep my resolution strong. You must guide my steps and carry me. I love what Charles Bridges in his commentary on Psalm 119, this verse in particular, verse 8 says, he says, God did not issue the commands expecting that we could turn our own hearts to them but that the conviction of our entire helplessness might cause us upon Him who loves to be sought and never will thus be sought in vain. The question I have is, do we actually believe that? Do we actually believe that the Lord not just commands, but then will also give the strength to obey? This goes back to an old ancient prayer that St. Augustine prayed. He said, Lord, you are God. Command what you will. But Lord, I am a fallen creature. So in order for me to do what you command, you must give what you command. And so I don't think any of us have a doubt that the Lord commands these things. Do we really believe that he gives the grace to obey the commands? I love what Thomas Manton has to say in response to that. He's a Puritan who wrote a commentary on Psalm 119. A sermon on each verse, by the way. So if you think we're going too slow, we could go slower. But here's what Thomas Manton said. He said, God is no Pharaoh to require brick where he giveth no straw. You remember Pharaoh cruelly did that to the Israelites. Hey, your quota for brick just went up. You don't get any straw. That's not the Lord. That's not how he interacts with his people. He says, here's the command. Here's the grace to walk in obedience. I just think we're too slow to believe that he'll actually give the grace. And I think we're too quick to trust in our own resources. And when I say we, I'm including myself in that. And sometimes we just give up in despair, don't we? All right, well, I've tried in the flesh and I can't do it. So I guess I'm just going to turn a blind eye to those commands. No, 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 no. What does Jesus say? What's impossible with man is not impossible with God. And so the Lord gives strength for us to walk in obedience by His Holy Spirit. Do we believe that? Do we look to Him in faith to give that? Brothers and sisters, We make no mistake, we are sanctified by faith. (laughs) Faith that God will provide the strength by the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience to His commands. Don't try to do it in the flesh. It's a fool's errand, and God loves you enough to not allow you to be able to do that. He will allow you to fall on your face again and again. And he's gracious to do that so that we learn to rely upon him. But we have to go back to the fact that Jesus, again, is the one who perfectly lived this psalm. Jesus alone is the one who did this on our behalf. This is not to be read as a covenant of works. It's not here to condemn you. Yes, it's here to convict you to purify you, to sanctify you. But listen, the covenant of works has been fulfilled by Jesus. He paid the price. He perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. All that is yours in him. And because we're united to him, we will now follow in his footsteps. He is our substitute. Praise be to God. I think we like that. And sometimes we're tempted to say, I don't know if he's my example though. No, he is. And he gives the grace to walk in obedience to him. And I think Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 capture this beautifully. When Paul says, and this is what I'll close with, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What's the problem? It's not the law. 
The law is good and righteous and holy. The problem's us. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh by dying on the cross. In order, listen to this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You may say, what? We fulfill the righteous requirement of the law? How? By keeping it perfectly? No, Jesus did that. But what was the whole intent of the law? It's to love God and love your neighbor and walk in accord with his word from a sincere heart. And brothers and sisters, by God's grace, we do that. And oh, unbelievers this morning, that you would see the blessed life and desire it and pursue it. Only God can do that in you. And so I pray that he will. But let's pray together now. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're so thankful for your gracious dealings with us. We know how weak we are. Even as those in Christ, we quickly can relate to the Apostle Paul's experience in Romans chapter 7. And yet, Lord, we're thankful that we know the blessed life because of your grace. We know that we desire it because of your Spirit's work in us and that we pursue it. Lord, we pray that we would not turn a blind eye to certain commandments that we feel like we can't obey or think that we can do it in the flesh, but may we rely wholly upon you, rejoicing in your Son as our substitute and following him as our example. We know that the only way that we'll grow in this is by steadfastly keeping our eyes both on the law and the gospel. And it's your son and his sacrifice that motivate us. And so we pray we'd never lose sight of him. And we pray that you'd continue to purify us to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.